Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are around the world and indeed the UK. And today we're going to be focusing on, um, well, I bet all of you have been focusing too, given the events of recent days, uh, the situation in Northern Ireland, Ireland, the relationship with the UK via Rory Carroll who's just written a brilliant, compelling book which raises so many interesting themes. Killing Thatcher, the IRA, the manhunt and the long war on the crown. Um, And Rory is also Ireland correspondent of The Guardian and has been reporting on events of recent days, of course, months and years uh, as well. Uh, Rory, thanks so much indeed for joining us. Um, could I begin actually by asking you, uh, I'm going to relate it straight away to the book, but your reading of the current situation, your book, just to clarify, focuses on the uh, IRA plot to kill Margaret Thatcher in the Brighton conference uh, with a bomb in her hotel, the Grand. We'll come on to all of that. Your assessment now, uh, where Northern Ireland is, uh, there have been celebrations of the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, President Biden in Belfast and Ireland, and yet the DUP are not going to take part in the Assembly, so it's not running. There is talk of terrorist alerts being heightened. What's your reading of now compared with this extraordinary period you chronicle in your book. Oh, well, hi, Stephen. Thank you very much for having me on the show. The Well, there's a lot to celebrate in Northern Ireland right now. Um, I mean, compared to the 1980s, when we were halfway through the Troubles, which were just awful, um, and now 25 years on from the Good Friday Agreement, the peace has held. And that really is uh, a source of, you know, should and is a source of jubilation um, and congratulation for those who pulled it off. So that's the good news. The bad news is that Northern Ireland is locked in this cycle of political dysfunction. Uh, the institutions of the, the Stormont Assembly and executive have never functioned well. And now we're seeing the latest crisis of that, this caused by Brexit and the Democratic Unionist Party's boycott. So we've had no uh, assembly. So there's this political vacuum there. And I mean, I think it will actually... There's an expectation that would be resolved in the next few months that the DUP will find a way to revive the executive and the assembly. And so they may zigzag their way back into it. And so we may find some sort of compromise and, and resolution. But that will still leave us, though, in this kind of limbo where we just know that we're only be this one crisis away from another breakdown and this endless kind of cycle. So Northern Ireland is in this kind of limbo post-conflict status where, thank God, the you know, the bombings and shootings have largely stopped um, because, by the way, the, the security, the alerts that we've seen, I mean, they're fringe things. I mean, I, I hesitate to say this, but, you know, they, they're, they're, they're largely controlled. These Republican dissidents are very st- small groups. They've been largely stifled by the security forces. So there's no real risk of troubled 2.0. I think the real pro- issue is not so much security and, and violence as just this political dysfunction and sense of the it's still a, a, a society that has not it's not at peace with itself. Mm. Uh, it, it, it's interesting that you say that it, it is very fringe the uh, uh, kind of focus on uh, potential violence because in your book one of the things which I found so 
fascinating uh, was, to my surprise, I could sort of understand why people were drawn to the IRA at the time. Um, the, the sense of this intense cause, um, and I'm sure the, it applied absolutely to the opposite side too, but you're focusing on the IRA. Can you understand the draw? Because often you were speaking to very intelligent people, very sensitive in some cases, um, and yet they were drawn to this appalling violence. Yes, I can. I mean, my own background here, I guess, might be relevant is that you know, I'm from Dublin, um, middle class kid. Uh, and But I started my career in Northern Ireland in the, in the mid 90s, uh, between in the twilight of the Troubles. Uh, so, you know, I'm actually came to this largely as an outsider. But I still think that, yes, I can, I can understand and empathize with, to some point, why people joined the IRA in the in 1969 and the early 1970s, because the fact that Northern Ireland had been such a profoundly sectarian state and the fact that unionists had uh, exploited their inherent sectarianly designed majority um, to lord it over the Catholic minority um, was clearly was a source of uh, of uh, of disgruntlement for, for for Catholics. But more than that, I mean, speaking to the IRA members, it wasn't so much like the border in Ireland. It wasn't an, an abstraction like, oh, I want a, a 32-county socialist republic. It was more basic and prosaic than that, that their, their motivations. It was that soldiers kind of smashed down my granny's door last week and and, and, and tromped to her kitchen and frightened her. Or they, they beat up my uncle la, uh, last week. Um, or, of course, um, atrocities like Bloody Sunday were big recruiting drives for the IRA. So it was more like, the, you know, the fact that you could see soldiers on your streets and you didn't like what they were doing. That was the main drive for the joining the IRA. Yeah, and one uh, key moment in your book, really, is you build up to the attempt to assassinate Margaret Thatcher uh, in a way that I suppose I vaguely knew, but it, it comes across so intensely in your book. The hunger strikes were a real moment, weren't they? When Bobby Sands and others died, it absolutely intensified the resolve of some of those who you cover in this book. Yes, this was a hinge point in Irish history, north and south of, of Ireland, because the hunger strikes such an emotional punch uh, to the solar plexus of uh, of Irish people. Um, the fact that, you know, one after another, starting with Bobby Sands, 10 men starved themselves to death. Now, even for people, many, many Irish people who loathed the IRA, were horrified by their methods, were still drawn by the humanity and even the courage of these, of these, these people. And in Irish history, the Irish are very good at at, at martyrology, you know, we make martyrs out of people who have done so for centuries, um, and that's what you do when you're fighting a superior f- force. And your rebellions are invariably, you know, failures. You know, you then make martyrs of your of your fallen, so they can continue, so the torch can continue on for another generation. So it was is that. So and it, and the fact that Margaret Thatcher was so personally blamed for this. I mean, they had a naive expectation, the IRA and Sinn Féin, that because she was female, that she might have some sort of maternal instinct. I mean, it was remarkably yeah, naive and dumb in, uh, of them, but they, they really did feel that. So when she stood firm, one minor point is that she was actually more flexible behind the scenes than she let on and than the Republicans wanted to acknowledge publicly. Um, but even so, she ended up being blamed for these deaths 
And this created a visceral hatred for Margaret Thatcher. I mean, she entered this, you know, a level of demonology in Irish Republican folklore that had not been seen since Oliver Cromwell in the 17th century. So, you know, to, to punish her, to, to wreak revenge on her and her government became a, a driving force for the IRA they, because it would have been hugely popular. And a driving force which led to this uh, decision to plant a bomb in the Grand Hotel in Brighton during the Conservative Party conference. And the person who planted the bomb was Patrick McGee, who uh, you have spoken to for the book. I think you had to do it via Zoom because it was during the pandemic. Um, But he, too, when when I talked earlier about the, the complexity of some of these people, he comes across as a, a complex figure, a, a pacifist at one point, then utterly committed to the IRA, then contemplates leaving, then returns, and um, returns with this astonishing mission. Yes, I mean, he his background, and just to clarify, he I interviewed him um, for an article in The Guardian, but subsequently to that, when I was doing the book, he declined to speak to me again. He didn't kind of cooperate uh, with me on the book itself. But he is... On one level, he looked like he was a like an IRA man from central casting, a West Belfast Catholic working class. But then he grew up in England. The family moved over there because his dad needed to got found a job there, and there he was an outsider. He never quite gelled with with England. He grew up in Norwich, and so he was like a you know it wasn't just his name was Pat McGee, but he actually was Paddy, um, in a sense that that kind of it bristled um, with him, and. He was a drifter in, the, in his teens. He fell in with the wrong crowd. He was involved in kind of petty theft and somewhat fatefully, um, not to give away too much in, from the book, but, you know, he was fingerprinted um, by the Norwich police in 1967 as a teenager for breaking into a, a butcher shop. So he was a drifter. He, he was a bit of a hippie in the 60s. And then when the troubles broke out in 1969, he, he went home, he went back to what he considered his home. And there... In a sense, he found his tribe. He found the the IRA, and initially he felt that he wasn't he wouldn't be a good fit because he was small. He physically he wasn't strong, and he he is this kind of quiet, soft spoken. Also, he had an English accent, so you you know this IRA a bit suspicious of him at first, and he had to fight hard to get in for them to you know to earn their trust. But once he did get in, boy, did he you know he became one of their best operators to use their own lexicon. Um, he became a bomb maker, an engineering officer in their terms. And that in itself, often most of their bomb makers, kind of, a lot of them blew themselves up. And so it took guts, really, to, to do that, um, to become a bomb maker and bomb planter. And he also had this great advantage for the IRA, which was that he could operate across the water in England. He could blend into England because having grown up in England, he knew, you know, he, could, he, he, he was comfortable there. Unlike many other IRA men were in a hyper localized conflict, many had never left really West Belfast, you know, and so or, or, or East Tyrone. And so to, you know, to move across the water to England, to London, you know, they were often fish out of water, whereas McGee, in contrast, could really blend in. And as others have noted, you chronicle the build-up to the bomb going off um, towards the end of the Tory party conference like a thriller. You even know the name of the chambermaid uh, who was waiting to go into the room where he was constructing the bomb. I mean, this is uh, meticulous. Um, How did you capture all that detail from that distant period which has been 
curiously sort of forgotten about, really, such an epic moment in British and Irish politics. Yeah, I when I first kind of stumbled into this, I just thought the Brighton story, well, it's familiar, right? I mean, we all know more or less what happened. And it's only when I started reading into it, I realized, gosh, no, it's firstly, this is fascinating. There's little, lots unknown. And, you know, that's what really got me very enthusiastic about it. And what I wanted to do, the way I wanted to tell the story was because firstly, you can't assume people are going to care about 1980s Britain or Ireland or care about the troubles. In fact, often it's a turn off. People find it depressing, complicated and mercifully in the past. And so to really to, to retell the story and do justice to it, I wanted to pick a handful of people, maybe half a dozen characters, including Margaret Thatcher, including Patrick McGee, the bomber, and and others, and tell the story through them almost in a novelistic way of how these lives and people with very different worldviews intersected through the, the assassination plot and the aftermath. Um, and so, you know, you're carried into the story through the eyes and the, the perspectives of these characters. And um, I mean, my first port of call, though, was first to do lots of reading. Simply, there's lots, there is lots in the public domain, including um, newspaper cuttings from 1984 um, and memoirs and books, including, for example, Norman, Norman Tebbett. Um, and so once I kind of had kind of consumed that, then I could see where the gaps were in the narrative. Well, what do we not know? And fortunately, the timing for this story was good because many of the protagonists are still alive. I mean, the Patrick McGee's in his 70s now, uh, walks with a cane, but he's 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 still very much compass mentis. Um, many of Thatcher's inner circle, um, Robin Butler and others, were very um, still sharp as a as a tack, and and also many of the police. And because the last part of the story is the it becomes a police procedural, and many of the police are still alive. So the the timing was great in that sense that these people were alive, and in many cases really keen to tell their story once I got their trust because they felt they had a good story to tell. Part of the, it's cinematic, uh, the juxtaposition. By the time the bomb goes off, he, Patrick McGee, is back um, in some sort of hideaway in Ireland somewhere, isn't he, or Northern Ireland. Meanwhile, Margaret Thatcher, you make quite clear, uh, if she had decided not to continue characteristically working for another few minutes. She might have been in the bathroom and killed. I mean, it was one of those could have gone either way. And there he was, McGee, back in, listening on some radio as to what had happened. Um, uh, just what a, what a cinematic dual image that is. It was. The juxtaposition was startling. I mean, yes, there was she, still in her ball gown from having attended all these um, kind of parties and, and, and balls earlier that evening. And yes, she's there. It's almost three o'clock in the morning. Um, all of her speech writers, you know, finally, finally filed out of her room. She's happy with the speech, but she still is attending to more government business. And, you know, outside is kind of a starry night, um, silent on the promenade uh, as the Grand Hotel largely sleeps, except for the last revelers in the pub or in the bar downstairs. And Thatcher there in her room and the bomb five floors above on the sixth floor, ticking above her sweet pulsing its final detonation pulsing down to the final countdown, whilst across the Irish Sea in, in a remote part of County Cork, Patrick McGee is in what we would call a billet, a safe house. And unsurprisingly, he can't sleep. He knows exactly that he, he planted the bomb three weeks earlier with a very precise timer, and he knew it was going to go off at 2.54 a.m. So, And his main concern was that it wouldn't go off. 
you know, that maybe a, a f- there will be a dud fuse or perhaps it's the batteries will, will, will die before or something like that. And he would have screwed up and that this would have become what with the British security forces often mockingly called the paddy factor when, when the IRA just kind of botched jobs. And so his concern was like, was this, that the, the single most important IRA operation had hinged ultimately on, on him. And so he's lying in bed, tossing and turning, can't sleep. Then he's listening on his transistor radio to uh, a pirate radio station broadcasting, and he's waiting for news updates. But it, the news is on a loop, and there is no updates until until six in the morning. He finally hears a report that there has been a bomb in Brighton, and Thatcher survived, but the bomb has gone off. And finally, for him, I mean, he's so exhausted by then. And uh, he's relieved to hear that the bomb went off. And so then, drained by exhaustion and tension, he finally slumps into into bed and, and goes to sleep. Whilst Thatcher, of course, back in Brighton, is on her way to re- basically living her, her finest moment. And, you know, it's kind of surrounded by the rubble. But, you know, she then, um, you know, burnishes the legend of the Iron Lady. There are two uh, characters who uh, weave their way through the book. Obviously, one of them, uh, McGee, and the other is Jerry Adams. And I'd just like to explore both of them because they kind of defy caricature, really. I mean, I was so intrigued by McGee by the end of your book. I looked on YouTube for interviews, and there are a few um, of uh, interviews he's given in recent times. And he comes across there as a bit shy, awkward, um, quite sensitive. He has since been released as part of the Good Friday Agreement. He's formed this relationship with the daughter of a Tory MP who was killed in that uh, bomb explosion in Brighton. Um, and yet, although that implies a degree of remorse it's not complete is it there is still a sense that the cause justified the act and 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 that is the complexity it seems to me about this figure that's right he as a sort of jesuitical sorry not sorry there's a moral murk uh with him which is that he he he, and I'm, very, I'm sure he's sincere now recognizes the pain and regrets the suffering and 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 and, and grief he inflicted on on people, yet he still defends the planting the bomb as a, a legitimate act of war, um, and overall he defends the provisional IRA campaign, which claimed more than half of the lives, or almost half of the lives in the entire troubles, and so it's I think because for him and many other provisional IRA members, it's just a step too far to think to acknowledge that it was a mistake. Because the the implications of that for their lives and the choices they made and the moral burden they would carry is just too too great, and so there is belated acknowledgement for the of the human cost of what they did, and yet going the next step and saying the whole thing should not have happened that's still still verboten. They can't. They, they he and many others can't do that. The other fascinating figure is Jerry Adams, who 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 you didn't get to interview. And I hadn't realized actually the degree to which from the early 80s, when you begin the build-up to the bombing, um, the degree to which he was trying to push then for, for a political 
process and to emphasize delivery of public services as much as the uh, uh, the military campaign. Um, now, you make clear he's always denied being in the IRA, but you also make clear at key moments in the book, he was the key player. There's a dramatic moment when you said there was one person who could have stopped the decision to go ahead with the Brighton bomb, and that was Jerry Adams, but he was doing something else. I mean, I think he was involved in some dramatic court case himself at that moment. Um, How do you weigh him up in the context of this incredible drama that you chronicle? Um, Again, moral ambiguity. He's an evasive interviewee, those who have interviewed him. Uh, What's your reading of him in the context of your book? Yes, he's very elusive, is, is, is correct. I think on a moral level, you know, his actions were fueled the troubles um, and he prolonged the troubles in the sense that he was very smart and the IRA credited him with being able to outthink the Brits that he early on, in as, as early as the 1970s, saw that were the nature of the conflict and he helped to kind of retool or is said to have helped, I should say, retool the IRA to fight a long war. And so many of the, you know, the, the torments that we saw unfold over the following decades, in a sense, can be linked, you know, traced back to the fact that the IRA was re- retooled for this awful long war. Yet, to his immense credit, by the 1980s, I mean, he not only sensed that, realized that there was, there was a military stalemate and that, you know, the IRA were never going to push the Brits into the sea, as, as they would see it. And and he decided to take action very carefully, cautiously, secretly. Um, he kind of crab-like edged his way into what we now would call the beginnings of the peace process. And what is most astonishing and remarkable, and to his eternal credit, and we should all thank him, is that he brought the movement with him. It took a decade or more, during which time many atrocities happened, but he did it. And that is a complete feat in Irish Republican history to be able to bring pretty much almost the entire movement with you into embracing peace. And many people would think, and I think I kind of agree with them, that actually Adams should have won a Nobel Peace Prize just as much as David Trimble and John Hume. I mean, he took major risks for that. But all of this comes with a huge caveat that his own actions in the 1970s and 1980s also prolonged the the conflict and, and wrought a terrible price. So you weigh those scales you know, I, I, that's not a job for me to do. Um, I guess, you know, um, that would be for um, for future historians. How did he pull it off? Because what was uh, really interesting uh, in terms of the internal politics is that certainly at the time of the Brighton bomb, uh, there was huge pressure on those who wanted to sort of focus on a, a, a peaceful route uh, to actually support... Be- you know, for want of a better phrase, the machismo acts of terror. So that by at that point, the point of your story, so to speak, um, there was still a huge will for terrorist activity, clearly within the IRA. Um, and yet by the mid-90s, Adams had got them more or less to back his path big leap in 10 years really yeah i mean well one reason that he, he did it was that he's very good in you know kind of machiavellian jujitsu 
in terms of just the internal politics of sidelining rivals um, within the movement. And so he was very effective at placing his own people um, in, in, in key positions. And he'd often be very cautious. He wouldn't necessarily come out with a new policy. He would get um, proxies to kind of float these uh, kind of transgressive ideas um, on his sort of on his behalf. And then he would sit back and wait, you know, and, and then follow. And so he was very patient and canny like that. But also what he did, of course, was he allowed or some would say empowered the, the militarists to continue shooting, bombing, killing um, and in England and elsewhere. And so the, you know, in the famous phrase of his, um, of his colleague, Danny Morrison, it was the Armalite and the ballot box. And what he and Danny Morrison promised the militarists was, look, we can do both. We can continue shooting and bombing and we can start fighting elections, you know, and one will strengthen the other. And this the militarists are very suspicious because they 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 sensed well eventually you got to choose one or the other you can't do both indefinitely, but Adams and um, suggested that they they could, but surprise surprise by the nineties which was clear you couldn't they had to choose one or the other and by then Sinn Fein had enough of political force in becoming a, a serious political um, uh, entity in in Ireland North and South that it was enough to, so the, the, the ballast shifted. And so that was enough then to be able to bring the, the kind of the military side with him. And so it was a masterclass, really, in, uh, in, in leadership. When you speak to uh, the former IRA members for your book and for, for, for other journalistic purposes, I mean, do you pick up a, a, a set, this ambiguity or do you pick up more a sense of, Remorse. I mean, to go back to Brighton, Margaret Thatcher emerged unscathed. But I mean, as you uh, write, Norman Tebbit uh, and his wife, especially, was severely injured. Uh, others died, um, and of course, that's just one of many, many examples. When you speak to them now, is it is it the Patrick McGee thing? Yeah, I, I feel terrible about the 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 loss and grief but I justify the actions because of the cause? Or, or what balance do you get now when you speak to former IRA people? You get a, a fascinating range of responses um, to this. I mean, one, for example, his name is Michael Hayes. He was one of the sort of the, the commanders of the so-called England department that was based in Dublin that was dispatched people like McGee across the Irish Sea for operations. And he is quite proud of his role um, in the IRA. He feels it was a noble kind of heroic struggle um, of liberation uh, against a superior enemy and that he would like actual recognition for what he did. Um, and that was one of his motivations in even speaking to me was that I think some pe- some feel that, you know, they, they're, they're proud of it. Um, whereas others are of the opposite reaction. They feel they're consumed with remorse, a sense that it was immoral and futile, even more than immoral, futile, that it didn't, what did it achieve? Because as early as 1973 in the Sunningdale Agreement, there was already basically a version of what they eventually got in the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. You know, the, the power sharing, a British kind of more or less commitment to say, look, we'll, we will leave eventually if, no, if we're not wanted here um, and so forth. So that was available in the early 70s. So what was it all about? You know, what, what would the following 25 years of, of mayhem and carnage achieve? And that's a very difficult question to answer for, for many IRA members. So the more thoughtful ones do wrestle with that because it's, 
you know, many would answer it didn't, whatever it achieved, it wasn't enough. And do you get the impression that their ultimate decision to follow the peace process and, and, and Jer- Jerry Adams' line on that, they think now, uh, 25 years on from Good Friday, uh, is working for them. Uh, I, I know from what I've read of Patrick McGee, he thinks it is, and he's committed to the peace process now, and that they showed their muscularity, and now this is the route. Do you get that impression with others that you speak to, that they have convinced themselves that this is the way that they will now achieve their ends? That's certainly the official Sinn Féin narrative, is that, you know, the well, the campaign was justified. In fact, that there was no alternative to the military campaign, as, as they would put it. And that now Sinn Féin and the Irish Republic, Irish nationalism is now poised to reap the rewards of this because, you know, um, things are shifting in Northern Ireland and that they, Sinn Féin, uh, say that uh, a referendum on United Ireland should happen within the next five years and that there, that one can envisage a United Ireland in, you know, the lifetime of people who are kind of middle-aged. Um, so they would say that, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it, 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 it opened the path to where we want to be. Uh, more sceptical voices, and here I'd include myself, would say, yeah, United Ireland, I mean, despite Brexit um, and the, you know, DUP and Stormont's dysfunctions, it's still difficult to really envisage uh, United Ireland. And the key obstacle is getting a majority in Northern Ireland. Yes, Protestants are no longer outnumber Catholics, but that expanding middle ground of people who don't align themselves either as kind of necessarily unionist or nationalist, you know, they still largely are happy with the status quo. Um, and it's the job of Sinn Féin to try to convince them to take this leap into the dark of, of a united Ireland. And no one knows what that would look like. We don't know whether it would be a new flag, the different constitutional structures, all these things. And so, you know, I, it's so Sinn Féin has to continue saying that United Ireland is around the corner. It's around the corner. But they've been saying that for 20 years. Just uh, finally, did you, I mean, obviously for you, it must have been a fascinating experience. You were part detective, part journalist, part, as you said, novelist almost in in, in preparing and then writing this book. Did those you speak to on all sides, you supposed to say the police, some of the Tories who were around for that uh, conference and, and, and former members of the IRA, are they as fascinated by that period? And, and, and do the IRA people you speak to, uh, is it very much in the past? They talk about it as, uh, as a historic period that is now closed. I mean, what, how, how did you find the interviewees? Did they quite find it therapeutic to reflect or did you have to really cajole them well, to speak? Because it's obviously a highly charged theme, the, the attempted assassination of a British prime minister. I think on the IRA side, yes, it took a lot of cajoling because this, in IRA terms, operation was still kept very tight. Lots of people implicated in it uh, have never been charged, never been identified and could, in theory, still go to jail, although realistically that's extremely unlikely. So on the IRA side, still a lot of kind of nervousness, skittishness about investigations and even, you know, this book about it. Whereas Certainly on the British Conservative Party side, there was a lot of people very happy to talk about it because they feel that certainly this was Margaret Thatcher's, her, her finest moment in many ways, that bravura conference speech she gave, that defiance she gave, that even people who despised Thatcher had could only really admire that. 
And so those who, who kind of survived that night, um, m- most cases were very, uh, say happy. I mean, they were, they were keen to talk about it because there was a sense that maybe Britain, UK turned the page just a bit too fast on, on, on what happened. Uh, from, perhaps for understandable reasons, because maybe by dwelling on it, this would have been seen as giving a victory, propaganda victory to the IRA. And so very much the stiff upper lip thing, you know, let's just move on, you know, nothing to see here. Um, and that, but there was something to see here and something, you know, it was an, an, an important part of British history. So I think the politicians were very quite happy to kind of, in a sense, to, you know, speak out as a corrective to to, the, to that and the police, for their part, were largely once I gained their trust. You know, the ones who were tasked with with trying to identify the bomber and catch the bombers, they were very happy to talk once I had their trust because they feel they had a, a, a really good story to tell and a largely untold story of how they did it. Because this is a pre digital era; it was a massive investigation, uh, very complex, led remarkably not by Scotland Yard or the anti terrorist branch, but by a an old provincial cop who was on the verge of retirement. And this, this is yet to delay his retirement to take this one last case. I mean, it did sound like a, you know, like a hackneyed Hollywood movie, except it happened to be true. And, you know, and how they did the fingerprinting and these huge, like they, you know, they had to, to get Interpol to help track down more than a thousand people over 55 countries. I mean, all of this basically without computers, um, and they were really happy to talk about that. I had a wonderful lunch. I went, into, went to Brighton to the Grand Hotel. I had lunch with David Tad, who's a crucial character in the story. And he was Scotland Yard's fingerprint expert who was brought in and has a, again, without giving too much away, but has a key crucial role in the, in the whole story. And it's great. I mean, you know, he's very fun, bright, as a button guy. And he, and, you know, they were having lunch in the Grand Hotel as he's discussing how, how he did what he did. So, you know, that for me was a privilege to be able to to speak, you know, and to meet these guys and to hear their stories. There is a huge what if uh, at the heart of your book, which is if uh, they had succeeded in assassinating Margaret Thatcher, I, 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 that would have been the biggest event since the Second World War and, and would have had huge, huge consequences, wouldn't it? I know you say they would have put in Willie Whitelaw or something, but but in a way that's a minor part of it. It would have been the assassination of a Prime Minister in that context would have been colossal, wouldn't it? Just Yes, I mean Britain's nine eleven right there. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. On that scale. And I mean not just Britain, but I mean the the, the world in a way because I mean, it wasn't just the prime minister, it was the Iron Lady. It was, you know, and Thatcherism was still being bedded down in, in Britain. So it might not just have been Thatcher, but Thatcherism conceivably would have yeah. died with her. Her role in the Cold War, the fact that she went on to act crucially as a bridge between Mikhail Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan. So, I mean, the stakes were extremely high for that. Um, and yes, but the, the, the what ifs, um, and according, and also another one is, well, not even a what if because this actually happened was Norman Tebbit. I mean, I know you've mm. you know you've dived into you know the prime ministers that Britain never had. I mean, I mean he clearly was was another one that yeah. he had been you know designated by some commentators as the heir apparent, and in a way you know from this awful nightmare of the rubble and and suffering and and the, the Grand Hotel emerges this 
I mean, a love story, really, between Norman Tebbit and his wife and the fact that he, then he withdraws from frontline politics part, for different reasons, but one of them certainly was to, to, to focus on the care for his wife. Um, and thereby, arguably, the, you know, the history of Britain changed with that decision. So, yeah, I mean, all of these uh, alternative histories are, are absolutely fascinating. Well, Rory Carroll, thank you so much indeed for sparing the time. It's a very busy period for your what we call the day job as, as Ireland correspondent. And it's a absolutely compelling book, say, which raises many, many themes as well as being this uh, extraordinary account of what happened uh, when Margaret Thatcher was almost assassinated during a Tory party conference. Thanks so much, Rory, for coming in. And that's it for the podcast for today. But we'll be back very soon to make sense of many, many things. Perhaps Northern Ireland, Ireland will feature too. So see you all again soon. But thanks to Rory and have a good time. Bye.